Today's episode is part two of the interview I did with Bill Berrien, owner and CEO of Pindell Global Precision. So how did Bill go from Navy SEAL officer to buying a machining company in New Berlin, Wisconsin, running old Acme Gridley screw machines? Obvious. Harvard Business School. If you haven't heard the previous episode, I suggest you go back and listen to that one first. This is Swarfcast, the show that helps professionals in precision machining excel in their careers. I'm your host, Noah Graff. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. All right, so... Afterward, on the GI Bill, you go to business school. Where were you in business school? Uh, Harvard. Harvard. Not too bad. I bet you you were the only person in your class that had been a Navy SEAL. No, there were seven of us. Seven? Yeah, seven. Every other Wednesday was Frogman Night Out. So it was, it was a good group. And there was actually, uh, Harvard had a pretty... I, sh- I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have assumed that was yeah, you know. no pretty pretty sizable uh, veteran class population. They're very uh, big advocates of that, which was nice. Interesting. Okay, so you go to Harvard, one of the better places, and then you know lots of routes after business school. What what were you thinking? I like the leadership side of life. So while a lot of classmates went to investing roles and consulting and things like that, I. I I wanted to go to some place that really cultivated and appreciated leaders. And at the time, you know, GE, General Electric, was sort of the gold standard. So I reached out through some connections and was able to get an offer with GE Healthcare here in Milwaukee. So that's what, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City and my wife grew up in LA. And we had never been to Milwaukee before that. And in those GE days, you know, they move people around so much that we didn't expect to be anywhere along. Um, but we came in 2002 and found it to be just a hidden gem. So we've really, we're 20 years in and love Milwaukee. Interesting. Well, I like Wisconsin. I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay, Harvard, let's just touch on that a second. You know, we we did our pre-interview and now like just millions of things are just popping in my head. My best friend growing up, he went to Columbia business school. He couldn't get into Harvard. Probably if he had been a Navy SEAL, he could have gotten into Harvard. What do you learn in business school? You know, you're know, you in business now. Um, you've been in a lot of management positions. What do you learn in business school that prepared you for what you're doing now? And do you think it 
as far as what you learned, you could have learned something similar at a different school besides Harvard. Um, Is Harvard ma- mainly just for the connections, for the piece of paper? Um, well, I, mean, I think in general terms, for transitioning veterans, I think business school is a, an, an excellent choice um, because it it can allow you to you know come in with whatever background learn additional skills acquire knowledge and then go off in a new direction but you know building on whatever you did prior plus what you know business school taught you and there is a you know there is a lot to learn uh you know between the accounting and Harvard really focuses on it uses the case study method so you're getting these snapshots into decision making you know I think maybe probably 400 cases over the over the two years so it's it's really useful in that because you're given pieces of information you're given situations scenarios and everyone's coming off the same case and you're discussing it as a group you know led by a professor I think it was a great great approach especially with an interest in leadership um but in general terms Business school is a great pivot point for transitioning military. I think. Okay, I, but what if somebody didn't go to the military? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a. I think it's a good, it's a good pivot point for that too. Um, yeah. Do you think that you can be pretty? I mean, clearly there are many people who are successful in business that. Yeah, it, it, you know, definitely. You know, it, it for me it was a you know, part learning and part a little bit of credential that who knows how things go. You know, you know, first years out of in the. Uh, Right. And it's a ticket. Yeah. And maybe, maybe again, if something doesn't go well, you get a little, a second shot. You sort of think, think about stuff in those terms. But yeah, I mean, you, you it's, it's fascinating, especially these days, uh, the state of learning. And there's just so many resources out there. You can basically, you know, the tide has shifted from the learning resources being the scarcity to now there are learning resources of the abundance and the motivation is the scarcity. You know, you got to sort of, you know, dive in there and apply yourself to, to learning something. But, you know, I, I you know, I'll, I'll have courses from Udemy, Coursera, edX, you know, still to this day, just, you know, le- learn, learning new stuff. Um, podcasts. Podcasts. Yes. Yes. I, I, I you know, so, so subscribe to uh, probably about 30. 30. Wow, that's even more than me. Yes, yes. Well, I don't listen to them all, but I, uh, I, it lets, it lets me pick, uh, pick what would be good topics. Very interesting. Okay. So you came to lovely Milwaukee mm-hmm. and you're working for GE management. Well, Six um, Sigma Black Belt. Six Sigma Black Belt. Had you been wanting to have your own company for a while? W- was that kind of the end goal when you were in Harvard? It was. It was. It wasn't to like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to run GE. I'm going to be some big time CEO. You you wanted more something of your own. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we in the when you're in the SEAL teams, you sort of, you know, peer over the fence at the rest of the Navy and you go, Woo, there's a lot of process, you know, a lot of a lot of a, a lot of bureaucracy. Is there a total disconnect between the Navy and the Navy SEALs? To me, it just seems like a total different animal. Like you got these ones guys that are like in combat walking around with guns. And then there's people like Top Gun and then there's people on a ship. Am I looking at this totally simplistically or? I mean, it's different, really different communities. I mean, the 
the SEALs are closer to, frankly, the Army, and that's the you know, Army with Special Operations Command and and such. Um, but look, you know the the big the big Navy. Yeah, there is more bureaucracy because you know they are handling bigger things. You know, ships and battle groups and planes, and you know, process is important and decision process. You know, in, in a way, you know, GE has a lot. You know, everything you do has a lot of zeros around it. Um, you know, at the time, it was the most employees and maybe the most revenue of any company in the world. And wow, you know, you got a bureaucracy there. Uh, I mean, sometimes for a good reason, just because the decisions you make uh, expend a lot of resources and aren't you don't really can, can't pivot as much. But it's interesting. So I give career advice to, you know, anyone who asks, you know, especially sort of coming out of, uh, you know, either the military or undergraduate or high school, you know, everything. And I've got a, uh, you know, an adage of go blue chip early. So, you know, try to go to a, a known name brand company, ideally that has some sort of training programs, exposure to different areas, because that gives you an opportunity to figure out yourself, you know, what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. And also, you know, what kind of roles and fields might be interesting. What about and, just going straight to Pindell? <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't have liked it, you know, because I think actually, you know, GE, yeah, you did get, I, you know, Six Sigma Black Belt training, you know, really sort of root causing and critical thinking and all that and, you know, a numbers orientation. And I probably use, you know, that sort of a background more frequently at Pindell than I do, you know, lots of other, you know, skills that I've learned. Sort of a fluency with data and a willingness to, or, you know, known approaches to understanding gathering it has been, has been good. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I had the ambition to buy and ideally grow, you know, company and companies, you know, going back to the the military time. Did you have the idea of I'm going to start from scratch or you were more like, I want to get something established and then grow it in my image? No, I didn't. Uh, at the time, I didn't want to start anything from scratch. I, you know, I, you knew, you knew too much to, to try such a thing. Yeah. And I didn't, I don't know if I had any good ideas, <laughs> you know, maybe I did. Um, but it's interesting. So, you know, I go to GE, get the, you know, certain skill sets and, you know, follow my own advice. But I can remember talking with a uh, a PE investor, a private equity investor here and giving him my ambition. And he, you know, he said, look, you know, you, if you have that ambition, you've got to number one, develop the skills to be successful at it. And how do you run that kind of a company and, and all? And then how do you develop the capital to make it possible? And so he went from there, joined up with a left there to join up with a buddy for a, uh, you know, a Bain Capital backed uh, healthcare services company, which was a, you know, fascinating run. You know, it was joined as the COO and we had a nationwide set of dialysis clinics. We'd partner with kidney doctors to build and operate clinics in their markets. But you got you much closer to the decisions, to the cash flow, to, you know, executing strategy. You know, and that experience, you know, built on the GE, but it was much more focused on the end goal of getting to the position of acquiring companies. So is there something about manufacturing, machining, precision machining that gets you? Or is it more just you love business and you love creating something successful? 
No, I think I think the former. Um, you know, I, I although I probably looked at about 120 companies. When 120 I was, companies you looked at. So while you were while you were in no, the, I, I I had I had left some years later. I left employment. Uh, I had some cash in hand from a uh, uh, sale of some equity and and such, and uh, left employment to go on the hunt to acquire something. Probably looked at about 120 companies. Um, you know, 75% of the manufacturing, but, you know, I couldn't feel luckier to have found number one, a manufacturing company, number two, you know, Pindell, um, you know, in this precision machining world where you could apply a lean skill set, you know, because if you're doing, you know, so we are Pindell, uh, we have two facilities, a lot of CNC Swiss machines, multi-axis lathe, multi-axis mill in one and then all Acme Gridley multi-spindle screw machines in the other. And, you know, our niche is complex parts at medium volume. So complexity. Medium. Okay. Yeah. Complexity, materials, tolerance. How many people do you have? About 80. About 80. Okay. Yep, about 80. And, uh, you know, we don't do prototyping well, but we also don't do automotive high well. You know, we're in the thousand to million piece category. And... That's, the kind of people that I'm used to. Exactly, you know. exactly. And and having a lean background, a lean Six Sigma background was, wow, that's just terrific. Because if you can figure out how to take a little bit of waste out of the production of one of those million pieces or thousand or hundred thousand pieces, and then that efficiency cascades over the balance, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a neat feeling. And it's interesting, you know, being, you know, 10 years into ownership here, I have found a tremendous amount of parallels between advanced manufacturing and the special operations community, because at the heart of them, you know, we already talked about the role of sort of that floor leadership uh, NCO core, but at the heart, you know, both communities are composed of small, highly cohesive, highly trained teams enabled by advanced technology, you know, trying to do outsized things, trying to punch above their weight. Uh, you know, the SEALs, you've got all of that training and that capability, you know, emboldened or augmented by technology, you know, trying to influence the battlefield. And here I have Swiss machinists, Acme machinists, who also enabled by a tremendous amount of technology, you know, enabled to put out thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of you know, really complex parts. And did you look, did you look at anywhere else that was similar to Pindell when you were in your 120 companies? Uh, you know, a couple of lower volume, lower volume, not exactly tool and die, but you know, bigger part, lower mix, uh, lower, lower volume manufacturing. Um, when I acquired Mark Pendel, second generation owner, he stayed on board full-time two years you know, sort of a declining time commitment over the next five years, four years, four or five years, you know, and it was great transfer of ownership. And it's really a tribute to him that he would, you know, after, you know, cash in the pocket, still be interested in the company and the team and the customers and all. And I mean, I'm sure that was part of the deal, you know, well, two years was, but the, you know, after two years, you know, no, no commitments, but you know, he stayed, oh, he stayed more after the two yeah, year commitment, like four, four or five more, you know, and you didn't mind it. What didn't yeah, not, it wasn't, it wasn't full time. He moved away, you know, went from make maybe three days a week, you know, eventually down to one and then, you know, remotely available and stuff like that. So it was, it was a, you know, a great, a great transition and it's uncommon for 
you know, I, I think as you've seen in this industry for a seller to uh, care enough to stick around uh, and, and, you know, be just drawing a salary. Um, you know, you're not- I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've encountered quite a few actually people who sell the company and either stay on as an employee for a long time, or that's part of the transition. I, you know, it, it, it it's good. It's good to hear. It's more common. Yeah. You know, cause Graf Pinkert, that's one of the things we're trying to grow is the M&A consulting quote unquote for precision machining companies. And that seems to be kind of like one of the caveats of the deal is that people need some guidance. You know, honestly, if you ever, if you ever come across family owners that are oh, we got to talk after this i i i we we have we may have something yeah yeah i mean because those two things you can craft great great transition and exit plans that uh you know protect their legacy you know but get them out of uh what they don't want to be doing anymore um and re- the responsibility and all of that and you know it often turns out to be better for the team and the customers and and all of that. Okay, so let's get back to the story. So you bought Pindell. Yep. You had worked for private equity. You had been in the military. You had gone to some snazzy schools. What was the first thing you do when you got there? Um, this is funny because like I wrote down all these notes, and all of a sudden these things are just coming to all, me. All, like all, all script, uh, all good. That's uh, why. That's that's the beauty of it. You 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 prepare, and then it goes off script. It's Sure, you've experienced that in everything you do. Well, the uh, you know the the military had a plan of no, or it had a adage of uh, no plan sur- survives the first contact. But I always like the who's the big boxer, um, Mike Tyson. Yeah, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Exactly, I, I say that all the time. <laughs> I was saying that to somebody yesterday. <laughs> Love that quote. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's it, 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 it's it's funny, you know, because coming into Pindell, you know, I didn't I didn't have a grand plan for you know it was well performing. I didn't have a grand plan of I'm going to go in this direction or you know do something different or all that. It was really you know first a period of learning because I don't have a machining background either. Uh, you know, I, you know, it was, how did the people look at you? Did they look at you as who is this guy? Mr. Harvard business school. I didn't tell anyone that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go into any of those. Any one of those Harvard people who, no, 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 no. My brother-in-law went to Harvard and I I don't think anyone here even knows that. So, uh, my brother-in-law went to Harvard and my wife always remarks that she loves him because he, he never mentions that he went to Harvard unless Somebody asks, whereas I, I guess there people who go to Harvard are kind of notorious for, oh, well, when I was at Harvard. May, may the, may, no, no, no. May the record show you asked. <laughs> hey, listeners, I first just want to say thank you for tuning in. I know you could be spending your time doing a whole bunch of other things right now. I'm trying hard to build our audience for this podcast And as you might imagine, it's not easy. Rather than just ask you to rate and review the show, which I would love if you did, I want to try something different. I would be eternally grateful if you could stop this episode for a moment and think of one person who would enjoy the show and then send them a text message to recommend it. Okay, I will now assume you've taken care of that. Back to the show. 
Okay, so you're there. You're you're you don't tell people you went to Harvard. People look at you as who is this guy? So what what happens then? You know, I think being having been a SEAL gives you Okay, so they did know that you were a SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just you know, because that you wanna That has more cred. And just it's distinctive, but it's also, you know, a basis of if you could be successful in that community, you know, we can trust you, you know, here, because that's what people are doing. I mean, they, you know, they, you need to build that trust and maintain it all the time. Uh, you know, are you consistent? Do you follow through? Are you, are you ethical? Do you represent the company? Well, you know, and so you think because people knew you were a seal, that may have been something that at least latently, they might have thought maybe, maybe, you know, it, at least it keeps them listening. Okay, so so you're there. You got some good old fashioned acmes, nice slimy, oily workhorses churning out parts by the million, and or at least hundreds of thousands. Then you got some CNC. Was it was there CNC Swiss at the time? Just some single spindle. Yeah, only one one nice machine and two really old Swisses. Uh, so what were they? Let's offend uh, some people. <laughs> oh no 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 what it's oh, okay no. they're old nobody they're cares old. they're old they're, uh, citizen yeah. star sugami what uh one was a sugami be 20 that was really nice and then two older citizens you know because okay. you got to understand that uh the way mark had built the business was and you, you you'd be in a better place to tell me if this was typical but he the model he and his earlier his father had built was blank the parts out of the multi-spindle and then bring them over to CNC like machines for secondary operations. So right, but not Swiss, like, you know, not you're Swiss, talking no, about, I mean, right. so really the Swiss are sort of well underutilized when I showed up. I mean, they, there really wasn't a team around them. Most of it was mills for secondary operations. We did have some, you know, used Mianos. So you come in not knowing much about machining and then did your analytical mind look at the Swiss machines and go, oh, this seems we can make the part complete on these. We can make big bucks on one of these parts. So was that your kind of your idea to to build that? Yep. And uh, what was helpful was when I came in, we had about 1.2, 1.5 million in outside machining spend. So someone else making our parts and they were typically the more sophisticated parts that you couldn't just blank off, you know, in multi-spindles and, you know, get set the secondary ops. Right. So we, so I saw that bucket of money and I go, okay. So you crunched the numbers and you were like, right. You know, if we go out on a limb, get some Swisses to insource some of that work, instead of paying someone else to do it, we're doing it. That helps pay for the machine. Doesn't fill the machine up. And then you get to sell some of that extra capacity on a nicer machine. And right. And so you already had some of the jobs already for the Swiss oh yeah. machines. Oh, yeah. I mean, we used to have a whole wall of one of our plants that was four shelves, four big shelves high, four pans deep, uh, you know, and whatever. It's like 40 feet wide. That was all we called it whip. So that, those are all the parts that came over from the multi-spindles that would get peeled off over time to have secondary ops done. And, you know, at this point today, we're down to like five pans. 
you know, I mean, right. it's, so it's, you're still I, using the multis, but not, but not for blanking, but for making, making, making real, real parts. The mul the multis are making parts one and done, and they're not dipping down into five, 10,000 piece runs, uh, which they had been, you know, when you're blanking off. Uh, so the multis are for industrial stuff, like what kind of work? You know, you know hydraulic components, pins, various, you know, valve, valve components. So like inch and a quarter diameter or? Yeah, yeah. We, we have two that go up to two and five eighths, uh, but you know, most are inch and a quarter, uh, inch and a quarter and below. And you have good people who know how to run them. Yeah, you know, great people. As you know, the biggest risk to a multi-spindle shop is not a hurricane, a tornado, some natural disaster. It's a team that is aging out, about to retire, no, no reinvestment, no training, no knowledge capture, um, and it just, just goes. But our average age on the multi-spindle side is probably... 31 fantastic yeah you know we so how do you get how do you get 31 year olds do they pay do you pay them twice as much to run those and then the cncs <laughs> well you know it's, so it's interesting um going back to our discussion on nco development we have taken a page out of the military's playbook and we implemented what we call the pindell professional development program and we have six levels of multi-spindle machinist six levels of cnc machinist four of quality technician and four of industrial maintenance. And in every level, we integrate tooling you by SME. SME. Yeah, that's uh, so great. Tooling, yeah, tooling you classes um, where we allot time for people to take them. Tooling you classes, shop floor qualifications, and NIMS credentialing, uh, you know, slotted in at various levels. So, you know, we are, as you know, if you can fi find someone that knows multi-spindles, grab them you know it's it's gold yeah but we are you know we are with a professional development program and now that you know the team to be training them we're willing to hire for attitude train for skill oh um, that's the best yeah it's really good and you know and to your earlier question you know our the first three levels of multi-spindle machinists in our professional development program are paid more than the first three levels of cnc you know, yeah. you know I mean, significantly more or a couple dollars more uh probably more than more than a couple dollars no yeah. you don't have to answer this but i'd be curious if if you want to answer this what are what are the ranges of pay there and and feel free not to in different parts of the country ten dollars an hour in one part of the country is okay and ten dollars in another part of the country is like what the hell you know so you don't have to answer that yeah what i'll say is when I first came in, it almost seems like I can't believe it was this low, but you know, it was like twelve or third twelve dollars or something for someone coming into say multi-spindle without any experience. Um, you know and that was how many years ago? Ten. Yeah. Yeah, now it's you know, you know, significantly higher. You know, our, our starting pay on the on on the multi-spindle, you know, before the person sort of proves himself for 90 day is uh, $18. Just the start. And just the start. Yeah. And, you know, it can go up pretty quickly after that. Yeah. Because if you find someone that likes that, you know, that that area, that's great. I mean, I can remember we had... Uh, and maybe the, the pay, it's not even like 
more reward for getting dirty. It's more reward to attract somebody to try it. You think it's that? Well, I, I think, and I, then I, people might really like it. But yeah. and a big portion of the reward is if you can, you know, be able to manually adjusting your tools and watching your parts because multi spindles can make a lot of parts uh, quickly. They can also make a lot of bad parts quickly. Uh, <laughs> so you know, you want a team that cares about quality. And when I came in, we didn't, we actually didn't have ISO 9001. So I, uh, I led that effort uh, within the first year of owning, you know, just being, having been a black belt, calling people into a conference room and asking them to talk through their process as I captured in a process map was a great way to learn the business. Uh, so, you know, and having sort of a fluency with documents and all that. So I led that. I do say just a couple of years back, we got a AS9100 and I did not lead that. You know, we had a great team to lead that effort of getting our aerospace certification, which is, which is great. Um, you know, so I'm very proud of them. Okay. So you've got a respect for both the Acmes that were sort of an established thing and then you built the Swiss up and you've tried to create an identity, almost two companies for the t for for both things, even though it's all under Pindel Global Precision. Can you explain the sort of the separation you made and why? Yeah, we just we found that, uh, you know, aerospace companies, medical companies want to have a pure play supplier for the type of components that they need, which are in most cases, Swiss components, uh, no, or, or multi-axis late, but C, let's just say CNC components. You're really not gonna use Acme's to make aerospace, or you know, at least we haven't, we haven't done that. Um, I don't know if others in the industry have, um, you know, but that customer feedback that we got was, you know, I, I, I wanna be, you know, we, we want our parts over here on these machines. And in turn, a lot of industrial customers that might have wanted CNC components, but also were biased towards multi-spindle, didn't want to have the costs, the burdens that we had on the Swiss and on the CNC affecting their... I mean, it's all their perception. It's just... Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we incubated another brand name, Liberty Precision, that focuses uh, specifically on uh, aerospace defense. Um, uh, and that really interesting. I mean, I spoke with, a interviewed another guy with a Swiss shop a little while ago, uh, Sean Gaskin. I don't know if you heard it and he has a separate company. He does medical, but then he has a separate company for like implantables. Interesting. Um, maybe it was because of that. Like he wanted just to show, you know, this one is even more glamorous than the other one or I don't well, know. Yeah. I mean, we didn't want to, when we got their aerospace certification, we didn't want to get it on the, the on the multi-spindle plant too, um, you know, because there's a tighter, there's just extra costs there that you don't necessarily want to burden your uh, industrial customers with that aren't aren't as interested in that. So it could be something like that. Like he only wanted to get the 1345 on a portion of his operations, not- That might've been it. That might've been it, getting the certification on a portion of it. Um, okay, a couple, let's let's go rapid fire because this has just been fantastic. Uh, I like to ask people often, what's something that you learned last week, you know, or read or heard in a podcast that just struck you 
It, it can be anything. Got it. Got it. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess something on Swarfcast, maybe. Well, I, I, there you go. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, I'm reading this uh, fascinating book by a guy named John Gardner uh, called uh, "He Wrote Excellence: Self Renewal." He was actually the only Republican in Johnson's administration, Johnson's cabinet. John Gardner. Uh, all right, I'll write that yeah. down. You know, and he founded Medicare, uh, or he was the thought leader behind it. Um, yeah, but he wrote this book. Uh, it's called Self Renewal, and I think it has a lot of application to you know where we are society wise. You know, in terms of at a period where institutions need to be renewed, uh, you know, transformed or 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 not renewed, pushed pushed aside. You know, there's you know, I take I take you know points of it are you know relevant to you know manufacturing manufacturing companies. How do you how do you sort of continually renew and refresh? for you know the next hill to climb you know, we've got a uh, we've got a goal out to the team i call it the 25050 plan so our goal is the two double the business uh in 4 years increase by 50% the the operating margin and increase by 50% uh individuals pay or compensation you know whether it's wage or bonus or, or all of that cuz if you can get, yeah if you can get the first two the third's possible and so, you know, we're sort of, we're, we're working on that plan, you know, with all the, you know, hopeful benefits that come with it in terms of growth and training and fulfillment and all that, and all of that. Uh, so part of that sort of renewal process there. Very interesting. One more question. Uh, when you, when you think of happiness, what do you think of? Um, I think of friendships, uh, you know, family, you know, a sense of contribution uh, and a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, you know, I think uh, you know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a people person, so I, you know, definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, they, it's funny there's I was reading reading a some article about, you know, there's a German t- German term Schadenfreude, which is basically you take happiness in other people's misery. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've heard this recently. Yeah. Right. Well, there's in this article it said there's a opposite term for that, which is like Freudenfreud, you, you take happiness in their happiness, in their, you know, in their, you know, success. Uh, and I think I'm much, I'm much more the latter. You know, I, I, I like, you know, my family, you know, individual family members, friends, uh, others to be, uh, to be successful. I want my employees to be successful. You know, I think they're, I think this is a wonderful profession to be in. I think we're at a unique period of history especially for the, for this country where you know the opportunity I, you know I say to my team automation is not your enemy automation is your friend because if you can program it and troubleshoot it and repair it maintain it that's your ticket to a higher wage and with that you know especially up in Milwaukee you know Wisconsin we've got this manufacturing ecosystem you know, complementary manufacturers, you know, we machine, but I don't heat treat or plate or grind. You know, I got that within 15 minutes. And we got this wonderful ecosystem that goes back 120 years. Wow, that's great. Yeah. You know, you know, Alan Bradley founded in 1903, same year as Harley Davidson, you know, all you know, all of that. And it's this wonderful ecosystem. And you take that, you take a highly trained and a highly trainable workforce that we have. 
and you layer on top of it automation and AI um, to augment the output of any individual, you know, and it, it, uh, the you know the, the, the folks in this market. Uh, and I think that's the pathway for the upper Midwest and you know in the U.S. in general to becoming the manufacturing powerhouse to the world. You know, again, you know, because we were there. You know, Milwaukee, Wisconsin was known as the you know the the small motor uh, capital of the world. The you know the 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 machine shop to the world. Um, you know, Racine. You know, for you know Hamilton Beach and you know small motors and. I think I think that's that can be all in our in our future. Um, that's awesome. You know, yeah, we should have, or we will. I mean, if we work on it the right way, and you, know, I can talk another time. You know, I think uh, I think we need to think as a society very differently about upskilling. You know, and upskilling different from education. Uh, but if we can if we can solve the upskilling problem, you know, not only have we created a mechanism to renew society. But we've created the mechanism to take advantage of those trend lines, you know, those that ecosystem, AI, automation. Uh, it's not a, a low wage, you know, our future is not a low wage play. Our future is a high wage play, but it's a even higher output play. So yeah, you know, along the way here, I'd love to love to talk to you about. I do a lot, give a lot of thought to uh Yeah, I'm, that'll be the next one. This sir, this was so fantastic. Pray to God the recording's great and um, loved it. I really appreciate it. Noah, awesome. Really love the conversation. It's, uh, it's nice getting to know you better. I love it. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.